Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over the last section in the Plan of Atonement Theodicy, and it addresses natural evils. So thus far we have gone over the outline, and then even before that we talked about this a little bit in God's Power. We talked about God's Power on the Plan of Atonement Theodicy, and in the last podcast we talked about consent. Some of that is covered here as well. So there's two kinds of basic evils, and there's human-caused evils or moral evils, which are the consequence of human free will and free choice, and when we choose wrongly, then that can have negative consequences, or if we, even if we don't choose on purpose wrongly, it can still have negative consequences just because we're limited humans. But there's a whole other type of suffering that, well, depends on your point of view, but it's a bigger suffering in that we can't control it, and humans haven't caused it, and that's natural evils. And natural evils just include anything that humans can't really control, such as natural disasters, things as earthquakes, tornadoes, maybe not forest fires that are caused by humans, but uh, lightning-caused forest fires or something like that, and also tidal waves, and also the problems with our bodies, because we can't really control that, such as diseases or just the breakdown and degeneration of our body as we get older. I mean, you know, just by consenting to be human, we understood that that was something that we were going to have to suffer, but at the same time, it still causes a lot of suffering. And if God on this view could prevent some of that, we have to understand if the consent view covers that as well. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about. So starting off, you talked about in the beginning how with the other kind of the consenting we did with one another, and also just by consenting to come into a world where people will have free choice and that we may suffer the consequences of those choices, that there is a type of love that can be developed. And you mentioned the last podcast that learning to love someone that you would consider an enemy or someone that's antagonistic towards you or that you see as other probably is the most valuable or not valuable, but the hardest type of love to develop and something that we could definitely only develop here because of the uh, the separation of our minds and purposes and worldviews, I guess. And so you said that enemy love is great. But when we're talking about natural evils, you say, instead of enemy love, there is another type of love that is developed by facing natural evils. And the possibility is a love of united effort and oneness of purpose. So... I have a question about that, but first, would you briefly explain what you mean by that? Because we can't really control natural evils, in order to respond to them, we must unite together as a community, in essence, to address the havoc that they wreck or to address to see if we can eradicate them. So, for instance, smallpox is the world's most virulent killer, as we've discussed, and that was eradicated because of a global effort by all the nations of the United Nations, where essentially a vaccine was developed 
But even having a vaccine isn't sufficient. You have to distribute it. And there was a gargantuan effort that was global to distribute the vaccine. And as a result, we've successfully totally eradicated this virulent killer. And then think of, you know, we've, you, you can think of the tidal waves that recently have hit several coastal areas. You know, you see the movies of the tidal wave rolling in. And no person or group of persons could stop the tidal wave, but grouping together to put together rescue operations and to do what we can for the suffering that has been caused, it calls for us to demonstrate our compassion by responding to the suffering that is caused by that, both by the loss of life and and by the kind of physical injuries that, that people encounter. It calls us to unite together our efforts because we can't do it alone. An individual free choice is something that necessarily we do alone. Responding to natural leaping is something necessarily that we must unite together to respond to. So it's sort of implied by what you're saying. I'm not sure that you mean this, though. So if you don't, please clarify. But a question that comes up for me is, since God doesn't know how free creatures or free beings will respond to such natural disasters, by allowing them, he may, I mean, just the possible outcome, I guess, could be that we would respond positively, but it's also very possible that we would not. And if a natural disaster is, is allowed to go forth without intervention, if you will, then its consequences might be quite random. And I guess we talked about that God could preserve anyone he really wanted to, but in the wake of a tsunami, thousands are killed and I, I would have a hard time believing that all those people happen to have fulfilled their purpose just by chance and that they weren't a victim of a natural disaster because of just the chance of a natural disaster happening without God intervening. The fact is, is we just don't know the answer to that question. Is it possible that people die before they have fulfilled their purpose? The answer is, of course. Do they die before they've had the chance to have a life that was a significant benefit to them? And so let me clarify this. What is required in order for a person to be allowed to die before the age of accountability or to die after is that they've had a significant chance to have a life that is a significant benefit to them given the growth that they made before this life and that the suffering that they've undergone is also a significant benefit to them that they've consented to to either express their love or for the experiences that it will give them. And so, you know, we're not in a position, in my view, cognitively, to really make the kind of statement you just made. I don't think you can assert that kind of a statement. Um, Certainly, you don't have enough data to assert it. That part, I think, does come down to a matter of faith. But at the bottom line, it seems to me, it's when we say a person has to fulfill their life's purpose, you know, everybody is unique. But in fulfilling a purpose, the, the, the primary requirement of the theodicy is that a person has an opportunity to have significant benefit from the experiences that they've had and or from their ability to express love in promoting God's plan by being a part of it. Okay. Yeah, we'll rehash that in a different way in a minute. But I just wanted to ask some other questions that are just more clarifying for your view rather than critiquing it, I guess. So in the paper, I don't know if just because you didn't have time for this, but I posed the question just to get the general consensus of some people on a Facebook group that's uh, supposed to be for LDS doctrine questions and such. And these are, you know, people all all walks of LDS lives, and they're ready to give their opinions 
without really doing much research into it. And that's good. That's what I wanted, just to see like what the average person believes. So a lot of people answer that the reason that we have natural disasters is because of the fall of Adam and Eve, and it's a fallen world. So I was just wondering, in your view, does the fall of Adam and Eve or this fallen world have bearing on the natural disasters? Because just to clarify, I guess people are like, well, God created a perfect world, and then when the fall happened, that's when all these natural problems came into play, and they weren't there before, and so therefore God's not culpable for them. Humans are, but I know, you know obviously we don't believe in original sin and such, but the consequences of that could be. But I also know that you don't take Adam and Eve necessarily literally, and so how would you deal with that, or what would you respond to those people? That that's an Augustinian point of view, and it really doesn't play much of a role. And I don't see it anywhere in Mormon scripture. Brigham Young made statements to that effect, but I don't see it being justified in any of the revelations of Joseph Smith. The fact is that science demonstrates conclusively that there's been death and disasters and so forth with sentient beings on the earth for literally millions of years, and that the natural laws of the earth didn't change 6,000 years ago to suddenly allow things to occur that hadn't been occurring before that. And so, in my view, that's not a tenable position. I tend to think about Adam and Eve in two different ways. One is that whoever the first human being was in evolution who had moral responsibility was the first man in whose body the spirit of Adam was placed. And before that, Adam and Eve existed in another dimension, if you will. I don't think they had immortal bodies. I think they were more like spiritual bodies in a pre-existence. But they were placed in an idyllic position. I think the, the story of the Garden of Eden is precisely a myth in, in the best sense of the word. It's a very potent teaching tool about the, the human condition and about the choices that we each make to leave God's presence to confront mortality. I think it's a very instructive narrative about play, or however you want to take it, but I don't take it as some kind of a historical document that explains how human life you know, came about on the face of the earth, and I don't think that it was ever intended by those who presented the myth in Hebrew thought to be taken that way. In fact, I think if you presented them to that way, they would just look at you like you know, they were dumbfounded by the very notion that you were thinking in the way that you were. That's not the way the Hebrews presented it. Okay. And then, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess in your view, at least from some of what you said during the discussion of the third book, maybe it's more of the allegory of just us as pre-mortal beings that chose, since we're all Adam and Eve in certain temporal rituals, then perhaps it's just an, uh, a metaphor for how we all chose to enter this fallen world, or not fallen like it was perfect and now it's not, but just, you know, we were all in a pre-mortal state where there was not physical pain and the sufferings that we encounter here, but we chose to come here, and therefore we're in, quote-unquote, the fallen world. Yeah, the way the, it's actually the way that the story is both structured in Hebrew thought and the way it's presented in Mormon scripture. In Hebrew thought, it's very clearly structured so that it is the life of humankind, the meaning of Adam, as we've discussed, and, and the story of life, which is from Hava or Eve. And so it's presented as the story of every man. And the way that the Mormon scriptures presented is precisely that an affirmative choice was made to confront evil so that the benefits that could be derived therefrom could be realized. That's the way Mormon scripture repeatedly presents it. The book of Moses, 
Section 29 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Second Nephi 2, and so forth. I mean, all of these present the Felix Culpa, or the happy fall, as you will, famously presented by Milton, where the fall is actually a net benefit to human beings. And so what we're looking at here is a purposeful consent and, and decision to take on a mortal life. We could have stayed, in, and this is something we'll be talking about, we could have stayed in an hedonic paradise, meaning we could have stayed in a world where there was no pain, we weren't confronted by real challenges, and there was no real need for growth in order to exist in that world. We were just fine. And I take the story of the, you know, the one-third of the angels who chose not to become human. I take that as a story that God gave us a free choice whether we would confront this world after he explained to us what his plan was. And we were allowed to either consent or not consent. I think that's the importance of that story in Mormon scripture. So this is very instructive of the consent that is built into confronting this world in Mormon theology. Our scriptures are riddled with the notion that humans consented to this type of a world with all of its challenges so that we could benefit from our experiences. And that leads right into the second point here. So, Jacob, if you want to go ahead and read that and then discuss. And before we get into that, I also had just a, a quick question on the, the different types of evils. I wanted to know evils due to, like, incompetence. So it's not a natural evil, but say the car is accidentally not put in park and when the, the parent leaves and then you know, a few minutes later a toddler gets run over because the, the car backs over or you know negligent things like this evils to the negligence so like hu human ignorance type things yeah uh, it's not a moral negligence. evil but it's also not a natural evil well it's a combination of both isn't it it's a combination of human inattention and the, and the way that natural laws work and so we're negligent, and the natural world devolves in a certain way that if we'd paid attention, we would have realized that it could devolve in that way. So, for instance, take the story of my friend. Kids come home after going to church. They're walking by the neighbor's house. The neighbor did not engage the parking brake, and the car rolls backwards over the little girl while her brother watches it happen. This is just, you know, it's the kind of human inattention and negligence that we all have sometimes. It's innocent. But if somebody had thought about it and realized, you know, if I don't set the brake, this car could roll backwards and a person could be put in, in danger by that, you know, just a moment's thought would have said, I better set the brake. And so even though it's a fairly innocent act, it has tremendous consequences. And these are really a combination of moral evil, or our choice not to be conscious of and think through the consequences of what we're doing. And the way that natural world devolves, because the, the recognition of what's going to happen is based upon the way that the natural laws work so that we can predict what's going to happen in the world or the way that we expect people to act. Like if I'm a, a bartender and I keep giving a person drinks and I watch them go out and get in their car, I'm negligent, knowing that the proclivity for people who've had too many drinks, and that's, this too would be a natural evil in part as well. And it's a combination of both because everybody knows that when you have a certain blood alcohol level, your, your thinking is, is highly impaired and so is your response time and so forth, which leads to accidents. And so the kind of evil you're talking about is a combination of both natural evils and human free will. And there's others that you, I mean, because you said like, oh, we could be conscious of them, but there's also obviously things that humans just don't know that they don't know. Um, I, if we just look at the history of medicine, I think that's a, a great point. For example, if someone got sick just maybe even 100 years ago, well, maybe let's say more, 200 years ago, instead of being treated with actual medicine, you know, we would say everything they're doing to them is completely ineffectual, almost 
witch doctoring folk magic, like like bleeding people. Like, oh, maybe that worked one time, so let's just have people bleed into a pan, and somehow that might help them. I mean, yeah, but those are straightforward natural evils. I mean, they're trying to to address the natural evils that occur in the human body, things that occur from bacteria and viruses and so forth. Those are all part of the natural world. Right. I'm just saying the thing the the reason that they're occurring though is because of human ignorance. Meaning, had humans more knowledge, they could eliminate those evils. But they don't have that knowledge yet, and maybe they have to develop naturally. But I guess a question I don't know if Jacob meant to ask this, but is God culpable for withholding that type of knowledge from humans, or do humans have to develop that on their own? And some for some reason that's necessary to some greater good. Well, remember, it's a part of not living in a hedonic paradise where we can benefit from the challenges that are presented in our lives. So a life where we don't feel any pain and so forth, and we're going to discuss the purposes of pain that go beyond merely experiencing pain. But the fact is, is that we've chosen to enter a world where we are confronted by these kinds of natural difficulties and diseases and cancer and, you know, genetic abnormalities and so forth are all part of those. At least in theory, all of those could be addressed if we had perfect knowledge, but I'm not even sure that that's the case. I mean, I don't know. It may be that certain strains of bacteria are just resistant to everything or that they are so resistant in, in a, you know, mutated form and that they, you know, it's like they say in, in the movie, life will find a way. It may be that bacteria will always find a way to defeat whatever vaccine we come up with over time. We just don't know. And so with these kinds of evils, we're not thrust into the world. We've chosen to come to the world to confront it, knowing that these kinds of evils existed. But they can be instrumental for us in the sense that they are the engine through which we learn to love each other and through which we learn not merely love, but we learn from our experiences. Let me give a good example. You go to the Grand Canyon and you see the beauty and you're awed by it. But the problem with that is if you come too close to the edge, you're going to fall off and it could kill you. Falling off is clearly a, a, an evil. We don't want it to happen. But the bottom line is, you know, if the ground gives way underneath you while you're at the Grand Canyon, as happens a few times every single year, that's just a part of the natural world. And you're right, if, if we were omniscient, though I think almost all natural evils could be eradicated. We can talk about the reasons that God hasn't, but it's just the fact that if we lived in hedonic paradise, the kinds of growth that we're experiencing and that comes from being in this kind of world would be impossible, and that would defeat God's purposes. Okay, and then... I guess, unless you have more questions on that, Jacob, proceed with that paragraph. So, yeah, let's, let's dive back into Dad's text here. He says, Further, we all consented to confront a world that presented such challenges. We could have remained in a world free of such diseases and natural disasters, yet chose to confront this world so that we could be stretched beyond our self-absorbed and egocentric existence. Just as with any given instance of moral evil, no particular natural evil is necessary to a greater good. So this is an important recognition, it seems to me. Could God have accomplished his purposes without the event of Rachel Runyon being bludgeoned and raped? And I think the answer is clearly yes. It's not necessary to God's plan that this particular act occurred because a person had free will and may not have done it. And it seems to me it's the same thing with natural evils, that no particular instance is necessary. But the fact that such instances actually do occur, or that they can occur, is necessary. And so when we're seeing these kinds of events occur, recognizing 
that the fact that they must be allowed to occur at some instances, what we're seeing is God saying, I've created a world where these kind of things can occur, and I'm going to allow them to occur based upon the kinds of choices and the natural laws that exist. And he's not a, you know, he's not a deist God. He's not a, a God who wound up the clock and just let it wind down. He, he's ever-present, and he's involved in his creation. But for the most part, God is simply allowing these things to devolve naturally because he's so omniresourceful that he has set up the world in a way that his purposes won't be defeated. And it is set up in such a way to give us the opportunity to learn from our experiences and to grow from the challenges that, that confront us. Obviously, there are challenges like if I get a brain cancer, they're going to destroy me as a person. And, you know, there are little kids who haven't had a chance at much life who get brain cancers that destroy them as people before they even get the chance to get started as a person. That was the kind of thing that, you know, that we addressed last time as to how that could possibly be, because that's always the toughest thing to explain in any soul-building theodicy is the fact that a lot of people never get started on soul-building and can't. And so what I think the revelations of Joseph Smith give us is an opportunity to see how those people would nevertheless have a life that is a net benefit to them, that they can say that their life has been worthwhile even though they didn't really get much of a start on being a human being simply because they were allowed to come down. They got a body that gave them access. So, And, and let me explain what a body gives us. I think I've said this before, but it's important to recognize Having the senses of the body gives us access to an entire dimension of reality that I would assert a, a spiritual body doesn't have access to. So having the five senses of the body allows us to access this kind of material world, whereas before we couldn't access it in the way we do. And so it gives us access to all kinds of experiences that would otherwise be impossible for us. And it gives us the opportunity to progress. And so the opportunity to gain a body is a great good. It's also a great good that people are allowed to come down and give others the opportunity to move forward God's plan. And they do so out of love, having consented that if that were to occur to them, that that would be sufficiently good for them to be able to express their love for God and for those who may benefit from it, or at least have the opportunity to benefit from it, that they believe that that would make their life a life that is overall worthwhile. And having consented to it in that sense, then we can explain what is otherwise impossible to explain on the traditional Christian view of a soul-building theodicy. It's the same with natural evils. I mean, there are natural evils that destroy, that literally destroy people before they even get a start, or that destroy, they literally make a person so that they're non-functional. If you get brain cancer and your personality is destroyed, you can't really benefit from that particular experience. Indeed, for most of the experience, you're not even present. People who have parents with Alzheimer's or dementia know this firsthand very, very well. And it's a very difficult challenge, but taking care of those who are not going to get better and that have done so much for us and just making sure that they're physically comfortable or having an opportunity to show our love for them is a great honor for us. And even though they aren't being benefited in terms of the knowledge that they're having or the kinds of experiences and they're not gaining from experiential knowledge, they are gaining because they're part of God's plan that give others the opportunity to express their love. Now, anybody can come up with instances where you see somebody who dies all alone, or there are natural disasters. And this is the kind where William Rowe comes up with the story of a fawn who is killed in a forest fire. This fawn suffers for days, and nobody ever knows about it. And he's saying, well, how does that benefit anybody or anything in the natural world? And so I think we need to augment the response to the problem of natural evils, and that's what we're going to be discussing. 
Then your next paragraph, you answer the question I think we're all asking. So you say, so, how does God choose when and where such disasters occur? Then you answer, I don't believe that he does. He chooses to allow the natural order to devolve as an organized cosmos to give us an opportunity to confront such challenges. However, he doesn't plan or cause them. He has power to prevent all such natural evils, but he couldn't prevent them all and still accomplish his purposes in organizing this world as a cosmos to serve as an arena for soul-making and progression toward deification. This is where I have a question, I guess. Just please clarify this. You say, however, he can justly allow indiscriminate natural evils to confront all of us because we have all consented to a world where such overwhelming challenges are possible. So I get that we consented to them, but how does this still justify the specific natural evils? Remember, no specific natural evil is necessary. So if you're saying, explain to me how this particular natural evil is necessary to God's plan, the answer is, this particular natural evil isn't necessary, but the fact that there are natural evils is. The fact that we're confronted by the natural order of the universe and that there is a natural order of the universe is necessary to God's plan. So what is the cosmos? The cosmos is an ordered universe that is governed by natural law. So when I'm saying that he accomplishes his purposes by allowing a cosmos to serve as an arena of soul-making, we have to have a world that is governed by natural laws so that we can learn from our experience, so that we learn that if we do certain things, certain other things follow as a natural consequence, so that I learn if I pull the trigger on a gun, the natural laws devolve such that a bullet ushers forth from the barrel of the gun and could hurt people, just as a banal example. There are all kinds of natural laws that exist that we have to know about in order to regulate our lives. And the natural laws are necessary so that physical life can exist at all. And we've gone over that in prior podcasts about how natural laws are absolutely essential for the mere existence of human life altogether. And so God must have an ordered cosmos in order to achieve his purposes of soul building because it's the only kind of universe in which soul building can occur. And so if you're saying, justify for me the recent fires that occurred in Paradise, California, which may well have been a man-caused fire, but if it's a natural fire, it's just an event of natural evil. If it isn't, it's, it's both the fact that fires occur and that, you know, people are, are negligent. Or, or maybe somebody said it intentionally, I don't know. And the fact is, I don't think that this particular instance is necessary to the fulfillment of God's plan, but the fact that such things can occur and that they can occur when people are negligent is a part of God's plan and is essential to it. Remember, on the view that we're presenting, God doesn't have the kind of knowledge and not even the kind of power where he can simply eliminate individual events of natural law without having gargantuan problems with the natural world, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But the bottom line is that it's essential to his plan that natural evils can occur, not that any particular natural evil occurs. I have a quick question, kind of goes on with what he was talking about in the last paragraph with the brain cancer. I'm not in the actual paragraph, but as we will, as we were discussing it, I mean, since brain cancer is a natural evil, does this mean that we all consented to possibly getting brain cancer at a very young age and, and dying and not really going through life and saying, yes, if that happens, I, I agree that my life would have been fulfilled or, or however you said it? I've given essentially various ways of looking at the way this theodicy can be structured. One of those is certainly, as you've described it, there's this general consent to the types of evils that can occur. So I consented 
God informs me what the natural order is and that these kind of things can occur in the natural order and then asks me, do you consent to enter that kind of world and gain from the type of growth that could possibly occur? If you don't get it in that life, you'll have other experiences in other lives, you know, worlds without end. So it's not over with if you don't get it here. But the fact is that this may be a great benefit for you. You may learn things that are really incredibly beneficial for you, or you may be an instrument for others where where they learn things that are incredibly beneficial for them. Well, you consent to enter such a world. And of course, if we're here and and that's the way that the consent is given, then the answer is yes. It may be that that some people would have consented and said, well, I'm willing to undergo these kinds of evils. I'm not willing to undergo those kinds of evils, in which case God could intervene miraculously to ensure that they don't confront those kinds of evils. That's another way of parsing it. That, of course, would require God to be much more involved in the world and may require, you know, it's much more difficult to explain in terms of God's power and knowledge. But, you know, God could be more meticulously involved if people didn't fully consent to everything. And he's saying, well, nevertheless, you can benefit from an experience and I can see how I can intervene in ways such that you will not have to undergo the things that you haven't consented to. So that's another iteration of the way that this theodicy can be configured. And people have different experiences in their life. Some people actually feel like their lives have been miraculously preserved or, you know, they were preserved from from confronting such and such a pain or an evil. And if that's their experience and that's what coheres with their experience and they see God intervening in that way, this theodicy can accommodate that kind of an experience. But it's not essential. What is essential is simply the notion of consent in a pre-existence. In our last podcast, I also specified it seems to me that God would have to give us adequate consent. So it's not enough if you're, if you're going to go undergo heart surgery that the surgeon looks at you and says, look, if you do this, there could be problems. That, that's not a sufficient disclosure. You can't consent because <laughs> you don't know enough. But it, neither is it a, a sufficient consent for the doctor to give you a medical textbook about all the problems that can occur because you can't understand it. You don't have the medical background to understand it. Consent has to be based upon your level of understanding what you can understand. And there may have been limitations for premortal spirits to be able to understand what it meant to actually experience physical pain, for instance. And so in those instances, what God has to do is the best that he can. And the question is, given what a premortal spirit could understand, could have there been sufficient disclosure? I get much more technical in this chapter than we're discussing, because I go through those kinds of instances and ask specifically, given the limitations on understanding the disclosures, would there be a sufficient disclosure to allow a consent that would be adequate in these kinds of circumstances? I conclude after a very careful analysis that yes, but it requires a very careful analysis and so, you know, I'm, I'm talking about those kinds of iterations on this, and I, I want to leave those kinds of doors open to see different ways that this theodicy could be configured. Okay. For different people or, or different spirits as we were consenting, were we given different probabilities? Is hey, you know, your probability of confronting this type of thing, if you come into this part of the world during this time, if you consent to that, is going to be a lot higher than it otherwise would be. It seems to me that for adequate consent in certain circumstances, it would be absolutely essential that, for instance, the circumstances into which we are born, God gave us full disclosure. Your father is an alcoholic. He has an anger problem. At times, you know, he's cheated on who will be your mother several times, and there's likely to be a divorce. You'll likely get beaten numerous times. But if you go into this family, he may learn something so incredibly important that your presence in the family is necessary 
for him to learn whatever there is where you consent to go. So it seems to me that God must give us a very full consent about the kinds of circumstances into which we will be born and the probabilities that given our upbringing, we will have certain kinds of psychological issues. We'll be born into a family with certain genetic proclivities of, you know, we'll have a bad heart. It'll be likely that we can have problems with depression and various mental issues that arise from our genetic makeup. All of that's disclosed, it seems to me. It would be necessary to be disclosed in order for there to be a morally sufficient disclosure to allow us to consent. So, so just real quickly, going back to the brain cancer analogy that I brought up, it would be that type of a case then where God would say, hey, it's very likely that you're going to get brain cancer at an early age, and rest assured, life will have been fulfilling up to the point that you live it, and there will also be other lessons that your death will potentially bring about for others to learn or something like that. That may be one way of putting it. I would think it would go something like this. Do you agree that your life would be sufficiently fulfilling that you would agree to it under those circumstances? In fact, some people are born with brain cancer. I mean, they never make it past a few days because of it. And so, you know, God would have to make a disclosure of that fact, it seems to me. And, you know, the kind of pain that a family undergoes when they lose a baby. I I don't know what people learn in those experiences. I hate to even go there in my imagination, frankly, because it's so painful to just consider. And so my heart goes out to those people, you know, people who, who lose babies. That's a very difficult challenge for people. But the answer is yes, and and if there's a genetic proclivity that, you know, you're going to have slow-onset schizophrenia as a male when you become 19, 20 years of age, I would think that, you know, the likelihood of that occurring would have to be disclosed. On the other hand, there may be a lot of environmental conditions that are kind of dependent on the free choices that people make, and there's this kind of general disclosure about, well, look, I can't really tell you what the probability is, but it's a possibility that given your light skin, you're, you're more likely to get skin cancer. I can't tell you what the probability of, of that is. You have the same genetic predisposition to have skin cancer as everyone else with red hair and blue eyes and, and very fair skin, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> that being said, I think the main, and I don't know if it's a problem, but the main challenge for your theodicy is, again, just the fact that even though we're consenting to all these things and the probability of all these things, the way you're presenting it is you're, you know, acting like, but let's just say there's a guy that's letting people on a roller coaster and he's like, you know, if you go on this roller coaster, you, it could break down and you could die and all this stuff. Like, but do you consent here, sign this form and you go on it. And if it happens, uh oh, you know, you just consented to it. But on your view, the problem is that God has the power to stop that from happening. And so, whether you consent to it or not, what you're really consenting to, at least from the view that you're presenting, is you're consenting to trust God, I would suppose. Because the fact is, no matter what you consent to, whether it happens or not, it's still up to God. It's not going to just, it can't happen unless, I mean, I guess God could basically prevent anything from happening. And that's kind of what we're about to get into in this next part. But isn't that the whole point? What you're consenting to is to allow God not to intervene. That if it occurs to you, it's okay. Right, but I'm saying it defeats the whole purpose of consenting to anything because there's no need to consent. What you're really needing to do is just agree to trust that whatever God's going to allow to happen to you is for your greater good. And maybe that is what you're saying, but it just... If I'm a physician, I'm going to do open-heart surgery. I can prevent the open-heart surgery from occurring. (laughs) I just don't do it. 
But the fact that people consent to undergo the open-heart surgery for whatever benefits they have, notwithstanding the dangers of open-heart surgery, they're consenting to it, and it doesn't vixiate the sense of consent merely because the surgeon could stop the open-heart surgery from occurring. I don't think that's a good argument. I think it's a, it's a bad argument. The surgeon you'd be talking about would be able to see any of the problems, or not like foresee, but see any problems that arise and have the ability to stop them from arising and then choose whether or not they do arise or not. That's the kind of surgeon you're dealing with, because again, you're kind of you're sort of presenting God as someone who can't stop these things, and he's just telling people, warning them. No, the consent is that God doesn't have to intervene. In other words, he's explaining to you the kind of world that you're going to exist in without God constantly stopping everything from occurring, where bad things can occur, and in fact will occur, because you consented to the kind of world where those experiences are possible, and God's purposes can't be fulfilled unless they're allowed to actually occur on occasion and maybe always. And so that's the kind of world you're consenting to. And the issue isn't God's power to stop it. The issue is the fact as, as to whether or not there is a sufficient benefit that can be derived from it that would make this a worthwhile life for people and for the person who's undergoing the experience him or herself. And so I don't see how it makes consent any less effective. And, and it certainly doesn't vixiate the notion that God has purposes that can only be fulfilled through allowing us to confront the kinds of challenges and evils that we do. I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of people that are suffering now and have suffered. And I don't know, I just don't find that they would find this theodicy helpful because saying like, well, I consented to it, so it happened. And so that was fine because I consented to it happening, and it just was one of those dangers that I, I knew was a chance. But they still have to come to terms with the fact that but God allowed it to happen to me. And I guess maybe they would have to then be like, and why? I guess he thought I could learn something from it. But at the same time, if I'm like, I don't know, like we haven't done this, so it's hard. Like, let's give a concrete example. And I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but so when you, you go up to a family member we have and they have stage four cancer, you're going to go to that person and you're going to be like, you know what? God wants you to have this cancer. He could take it away at any second. But do you know what? Since you consented to it, he's like, you know what? I'm just going to let it play out and see what you can learn from it. I hope you learn something from it. There's another type of a problem of evil called the existential problem of evil. And it's the kind of problem that arises when a person's expectation of faith and faith are so challenged that their faith is destroyed. This is an existential problem. It's not a logical problem. Logically, I have an argument that shows that it's not a problem, and I have a theodicy that explains why it's permissible morally. The problem is I still feel betrayed. And what you're saying is a person could feel betrayed because God could stop the evil but didn't. And maybe I can send it to it, and, and maybe it's necessary to the kind of plan that God has so that we can grow in this world because a hedonic paradise would never work, and it's not going to work to be in a world where knives suddenly turn to rubber just because I'm using them to stab a person rather than slice butter. But the bottom line is, is there's still this sense of betrayal. And I would suggest that this is a pastoral problem. This is the kind of problem that you, just as you already observed, this is a, an issue of faith. Do I have faith in God? Do I trust that he actually has my best interests at heart? This is a matter, I think, that's best solved on one's knees, getting to know God. The existential problem of evil isn't answered really by an argument, and it's not answered by a theodicy. It's answered by getting to know God and seeing if one can make contact with God sufficiently where the trust is preserved so that we feel God's love in our life, notwithstanding the fact that terrible things are happening. I mean, I could give you example after example of people who felt God's presence in the most horrendous circumstances where others lost their faith. 
And so this is the existential problem of evil, and it's probably something that we should have parsed out, but it's a very important dimension to the problem of evil. But the solution to this problem of evil isn't an argument or a theodicy. It's the kind of pastoral recognition that, look, the advice I can give you is from my own life's experience. This is the kind of thing I underwent. And then I realized, you know, it was the worst experience I ever had at the time, but it turned out to be one of the greatest blessings in my life possible. But it was only after I went through it that I could see that. This is the pastoral kind of response. I don't think some people find that, though. Well, no, because they get destroyed by it. person having brain cancer. Well, not even destroyed. I'm talking about if you're going to tell a rape victim that eventually you're going to find something so good coming out of this rape. Like, I don't think they will. It wasn't good. You don't tell them that. You don't explain the meaning. No, God can't even tell them that. No one can tell them that. That's just not a true statement. There's no good that's going to come out of that whatsoever. You aren't in a position to make that assertion. You don't know that rape victims don't someday realize the magnitude of the power of forgiveness and the love of letting go and forgiving even the most horrendous of criminals who have wronged one, even when one was most innocent as a child. You can't make that statement. The kind of virulent hubris that's present in that statement is shocking. Because you don't know that that's the case, nor should you say that. What you're saying is the solution there is that people then find some good in it. And that's fine. I And we talked about that last time that, you know, anyone can do that and that's their choice. And maybe, like you said, that's the existential problem. Well, not, not anyone. I mean, the person who has the brain cancer is not going to find good in it because they, they don't have the cognitive capacity to think anything through. Not when they're in the middle of their brain breaking down. No, I'm talking about, you know, when they find out they have brain cancer, assuming they're still cognizant somehow. Yeah, and it may give the benefit to the, to those who are with some family members or whatever who can benefit from being with a person who is, you know, you take the brightest person you know, and over time they're going to be turning into a vegetable that won't even be able to control their own bodily functions. This is a true challenge, and I don't mean to understate the magnitude of these challenges. This theodicy is not meant to reduce the magnitude of these challenges. It's meant to put it in such an overall framework that one can see that God can be justified in allowing these kinds of evils in this kind of a world for the benefit that can accrue both to those who can benefit instrumentally and from those who have consented to be part of God's plan so that God's plan can move forward. That's the point. Okay, let me ask you two questions on that then. So what I was getting at is that rather than me consenting to... I mean, I guess maybe some level of consent is necessary, but like, what, and this is what I discussed with you several years ago when I first read this paper, is that it seems that this whole consent thing is just kind of a pretense, and what we're really doing when we enter this life is because it doesn't matter what we consent to, whether it happens to us or not, is pretty much ultimately up to God. And so when you say someone is like, you know what, I want to accomplish this, this, and this in life, Okay, well, let's see how that happens, because you're not going to remember it, and whatever actually does happen to you, since you're ignorant of whatever you said, is going to be up to God, guiding it somehow to, you know, either allow you to live that long, or to allow you to suffer certain things, knowing that you may possibly get something out of it. So ultimately, I think, rather than consent, it's more like just entering into a covenant of trust, I, I guess. I mean, like, God, I'm, I'm going to go to this world, because you've told me that it's the way to do it, and this is the way to become more like you, and that's what I want. I don't understand what any of this stuff is. I don't know what pain is. I don't know what suffering is. I guess we could know what like some mental sadness is, I guess, but I don't know what physical suffering is. I don't know what any of this stuff is, but you're telling me that I need it to be more like you, so let's do it. I find it unhelpful at that 
level of existence that we'd be like, you know, I think I want to learn about what it's like to have spina bifida, because we, we, we couldn't comprehend that. We could comprehend, I want to know what it's like to have a hard life, I guess. Sure. I mean, I just don't see the point of that. I see the, I know that you say there's multiple views possible, but I don't see some of these views as actually being possible with the rest of the way that either Mormonism or your specific take on Mormonism is playing out. I just don't see them as helpful, possible, or anything. I, I see one of them is, but the others, I don't really see the point of them. In terms of moral permissibility of what is occurring, it still is, is greatly ameliorated by the fact that people said, look, I don't get this, but I'm still willing to undergo it. No, I know. I, I agree to that, but I'm saying, I'm not talking about that level of consent. The general consent, woohoo, I'm on board for that. I'm talking about when you're saying people like, because you, you stated this specifically, like, you know, and I want to learn what it's like to have an alcoholic dad in my life. Like, you couldn't say that because you wouldn't have any clue what that would mean, even, you know? Oh, well, you'd have no idea. I mean, look, what the cumulative experiences of a spirit based upon the numerous worlds which spirits have been through, you have no idea what that cumulative knowledge is at that point or how it's going to be, you know, accumulated in a person who is resurrected or, for that matter, when they're merely a spirit. That's kind of beyond us right now. Right, so why make that claim? I think what you're saying just isn't the way that most people will construe this. I gave specific instances in our last conversation where people are foreordained to specific types of callings, and I think that people have a sense of their life's purpose. I think it comes to them over time, and they begin to realize, you know, these are my talents. I choose this to be my life's purpose can also occur. I'm, I'm not denying that. But there are people who have specific types of callings in foreordination to fulfill a, a life purpose here. And so the very doctrine of ordination, and this is inherent in Mormon theology, it's Alma 13, where we all are foreordained to specific types of things. I have no problem with foreordination. My only problem is with the negative foreordination, saying, are you saying that you for, because that's fine, if you foreordain someone, they're like, you know what, you're going to go, like you said, Mahatma Gandhi is going to help the people of India, so I'm going to put him in the situation and foster his life so that he can do that, as opposed to, I'm foreordained to get cancer and die when I'm 37 years old. You can't, you can't say that, right? That's, that's, you can't do that. Well, maybe somebody is. Maybe their genetic makeup is such that they will simply turn on. I had a friend who literally was genetically determined to have testicular cancer to turn on at a certain point in his life. At least that's what the doctors were saying. So, I mean, maybe. But that's what we're about to get into. So let's, if you're okay, this will play right into what we're getting at next. So can we move on to that? Let me just make the observation. I don't think that what you've said is even really a telling argument against the, the theodicy that I'm presenting. It may be an expression of frustration that you don't fully understand, but that doesn't count against this theodicy. It's frustrating frustration in that why waste breath on that part when it's not actually helpful to anything. But it is. You've already admitted that the kind of, of consent that we give morally ameliorates God's accountability for evil, which is what we're doing. I know. I'm not talking about consent is fine. Coordination is fine. I'm talking about when you said things like people are like, you know what? I'd like to know what it's like to be beaten by my dad. I'd like to know what it's like to be sexually abused as a child, and maybe that's why I'm going to do it. You know, like, I don't, I don't find that helpful. Well, you might not, but others might. I mean... Well, they might, but I'm saying, what is it based on? Is it based on zero things. Look, if you're born into a family where you have a, a violent alcoholic father, you would have to believe that you were willing to be born into that family, right? And so, what you have to agree to is not that, well, I want to know what it's like to be beaten by my father, but that 
I believe that my life will be an overall net benefit and worthwhile, even if those kind of things occur to me, and maybe even more because I'll learn the kind of compassion that a person who undergoes those things learns. Let me ask you one other question then that uh, we didn't get into last time and I intended to ask. So I was looking a lot into the philosophy of consent and the different ideas on that. And I watched a few videos on like, you know, diff- the main things that we deal with consent in in our current society are medical consent, which we've gone over, and like consent dealing with like human sexuality and that type of thing and where consent is necessary there. But one thing that both of them did bring up is that you know, maybe not when you're in the middle of an operation, but consent can be revoked. And I'm wondering if you've thought about that at all, I guess. Just like if I'm suffering from cancer and I'm saying, I revoke my consent, I no longer want to suffer this dang cancer, take it away. Well, yeah, we do that all the time. I mean, people pray and maybe God will respond in that way. The fact is, is God has given us an out. It's suicide. And so we have the free choice to remain in this life or not. Suicide is a terrible thing. We're turning back the ticket that God gave us, and we're saying, I no longer trust you. I no longer trust that this life can be a net benefit to me. I no longer see how it works, or I'm so depressed I can't even think about it. There are a lot of reasons and issues for suicide, and it's certainly painful for those who are left behind. But the fact is, is God gave everybody an L button after they've reached a certain level of physical competency. That's why, on your view, you could not consent to specific things, and you could consent to specific things, so why can't you just revoke your consent to certain things? Like, I don't want cancer, but I still want to be alive and learn all the other stuff I can learn. Because that would defeat God's purposes. If you could revoke the consent at any time, then the natural world would cease to function as it should, and the way that things actually operate to allow us to benefit from our experience. I mean, it's like C.S. Lewis said, the only true realist who's ever lived is Jesus, because all the rest of us has given in. At some point, only Jesus held out and, and experienced the fullness of, of not giving in to temptation. Okay, so you're saying consent is, I mean, I guess what you're saying makes sense. So you're saying it's more like we're in the middle of the operation now. Is you revoke consent, like I'm, you can't do that right now. It's, it's, you consented to it, we're in the middle of it. If you stop now, it's going to ruin, it'll ruin the whole thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah basically what you're saying First of all, you couldn't give consent if you're under general anesthetic. Well, I know. I'm just, let's just say they're, you're awake. <laughs> let's say that you had just a local anesthetic and they've opened up your heart under a local anesthetic. They're operating on you. They're about to remove it and replace it with another heart. And just before they, you say, look, I don't want to do this. I'd rather just die. Well, not die. I just don't want the surgery anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the physicians aren't going to do that. Or, oh, I've decided, actually, you could, I think, say, I've changed my mind. I don't want a new heart. Just leave the old one in there. I'm just willing to take whatever comes my way. I think the doctors would say, well, the local is probably affecting your, your brain at that type, so you, time, so you can't give the kind of informed consent necessary in these medical procedures. Well, I know. We're using it as an analogy, right? So. But the whole point is informed consent. And, and the answer is, yes, consent can be revoked. But I think you can see that we couldn't revoke it if it would jeopardize the entire purpose of God's plan. So, for instance, we can change our life circumstances by making different choices, right? So if I don't want to be in a family where my, my father is an alcoholic who beats me on a daily basis, I'm going to run away. I'm going to try to find a, another opportunity to be in a different family or whatever. But, you know, if you're three years old, you don't have that kind of an opportunity. There are certain circumstances that allow revocation of consent and others that don't. Well, we're talking about natural evil, so... 
Well, if every time a person said, okay, I give up, I'm not going to do this, God's plan, and it stopped, obviously God's plan would be defeated. I'm, I don't know. You keep skewing it towards that, but I'm, I'm just trying to say, why couldn't you just say that I consent to everything but not cancer? Come on, stop it. Stop it with the cancer. But we do. We pray. <laughs> I know, but God doesn't take it away. I'm saying it's not that kind of consent. <laughs> Regardless of whatever consent we've given, when we get cancer, we say, you know, I believe that you can intervene and that you can stop this. That's the whole point of praying to stop cancer. I mean, and, and so when we pray, we have petitionary prayer, which is essential to Christianity and Mormonism. We're actually recognizing that God has sufficient power to make things different in, in a way that we would prefer them to be. And sometimes God answers those prayers, and sometimes he doesn't. And, and as you say, it often comes down to a matter of faith in God to say, you know, even if you don't stop my cancer, I still believe you have my best interests at heart. But man, I really don't want to go through this. It's hard. And, you know, God may be on the other side saying, well, that's the whole point. If every time it got hard, I stopped it, nobody would ever benefit because it's only outside the comfort zone. The growth takes place. So, yeah, you're uncomfortable. That was the whole point of the experiment. Yeah, but this person still wants the cancer gone. I don't know. We don't have to get into this much because we're too much time. I'm just saying you might want to address that to some degree just because it seems like if I'm saying I want you to take it away and then he doesn't take it away, then my consent is now invalid or because he's just overruling me at that point saying, too bad, your consent doesn't matter. No, you don't know that. You may have consented that if in this life you changed your mind, you were still consenting that you would move forward and that it's irrevocable consent. You can do that as well. I don't know. Just the fact that we don't remember needs to probably be addressed somewhat because I think that affects the consent. Like something I consented to and then let's say, I don't know, like I, this is a stupid example, but let's say I consented to be in the Hunger Games, but then I randomly somehow got amnesia and then I woke up in the middle of the Hunger Games and it's a crazy wild world out there. I'm like, wait a minute, I don't know what crazy life I lived before this, but where I am currently, I don't like this. I don't want to be in the middle of this death trap hunger game. I don't consent to this, and I don't care if I consented to it before. I now don't consent to it. I guess it's kind of related to my other question. If you can revoke consent, it's like, well, you're like you're not the same person right now. Like you're temporarily ignorant of your eternal self, and I know that's one of the goals that we're trying to, you know, figure out our eternal self for some reason. Even though the whole point is to come, not be our eternal selves to learn something. Anyway, but I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? Well, I'll, I'll think about it, but I, I don't think much of it. I think the consent that we give is consent recognizing that once we're here, we don't have the full knowledge to be allowed to reconsent. The kind of consent that we can give here is provisional on what we've already consented to. That may be sufficient. Okay. Well, let's shift real quick, and I just want to read these paragraphs and then just talk about them very briefly. But the question I'm going to be asking you is, when I read these paragraphs, which I'm about to read to you, it seems to put forth a different view almost, saying, it, it seems like you're saying two things. Like, one way you're saying, well, we consented, and then God could stop whatever he wanted, but then during these paragraphs, you almost make it sound like God can't really stop them, because if he did, the whole natural universe would go out of whack. And so let me read them, and then you can discuss that. So, you say, on the view that I have presented, God brings about miracles by withdrawing his concurrence from the natural intelligences so that they cannot manifest their natural propensities that account for the regularity of the world. When the atoms and molecules that form the, a weather system would devolve into a tornado, God could intervene only by withdrawing his concurring power so that they do not form electron valence bonds and thus atoms of water and other compounds would not form. 
Yet the result of such actions is not merely to stop a tornado, but to leave chaos in the wake of ordered structure. God cannot make it so that oxygen and hydrogen atoms suddenly act like gold atoms and thus fall to the ground under their own weight instead of swirling at high speeds in the atmosphere. He cannot make it so that these atoms suddenly act any way he wants. And then piggybacking off that, this next paragraph is, Given the nature of the eternal realities with which God must work, God must choose between a natural world characterized by chaos or a cosmos governed by exactly the natural laws that obtain in our world. God is responsible for the fact that there is an ordered world, but not for the fact that the world has the precise order that it does once it is ordered. Thus, it is not possible for God to have water that quenches thirst, but which does not have the property of drowning. God cannot have electricity that conveys power to homes, but does not kill when emitted as lightning in the atmosphere. God can stop the inertia of a speeding car only by introducing new and unpredictable consequences into the natural order. God could not have mass that doesn't convert to energy or a car that develops speed without inertia and thus has enough force to maim a physical body when it is hit. God cannot have bodies that feel no pain and still provide an environment where persons can negotiate the natural world without destroying their bodies. By the numerous small bumps, bruises, and scratches that become enormous gashes and debilitating broken bones without the natural feedback of physical pain. Some pain is biologically necessary for our survival. The point is that if God grants his concurring power to the natural realities, they manifest their inherent natural propensities as dictated by their eternal natures. God does not create the eternal nature of the most basic realities or how they can be organized. And so, like I said, it sort of seems like you're saying there that God, ha I mean, you said it's not deism, but I mean, I, I know this isn't going to fit the exact definition. You're just going to be like, oh, it's not deism, you're wrong. But it has the same consequences almost, meaning that God chose to let the cosmos evolve, but he can't control any way that they are doing that because it has to be their natural propensities. He can't make their natural propensities different than they are. I, it brings two questions. So are you saying God can't? intervene and i don't think you are because you say many places that you can't and yeah god can intervene but he has to measure his intervention against the effect that it will have on the world let me give an analogy it's like a, an amateur magician with real magic if you've ever seen fantasia you've seen where where mickey takes his wand and starts doing magical things he gets going as an amateur magician because he's changing the natural order of everything everything just kind of careens out of control and that's the kind of notion that I'm expressing here. God has to measure every intervention against the effect that it will have on the natural world and how it disorders the universe. Because how God intervenes in the world is to allow a bit of disorder. In other words, the natural regularities become irregular. And he has to weigh the irregularities that will occur and the butterfly effect that that will have on the world against his intervention. And so we don't have the resourcefulness of God. It's hard for us to weigh those kind of things. Can he weigh that with his lack of foreknowledge, by the way? Oh, yeah. I mean, dealing with the natural world doesn't require the kind of foreknowledge that we're talking about because it's a naturalistic propensity. It's deterministic. Well, there is some randomness at some level, isn't there? I'm not even talking about the micro levels. I'm talking about like once you get to like animal levels, like there is some randomness there. You don't know exactly what a fox is going to do. You know what his instincts are and you know what his proclivities are, but foxes have a myriad of choices. Yeah, a fox would have a greater degree of freedom than a rock, but not nearly as great a level of freedom as a human being. 
we're talking there about freedom. And, and yes, I believe that animals have a certain degree of freedom, but it's not morally accountable freedom. Well, I'm not talking, I'm just saying in, in effect to this question here, we're regarding the way the natural world works. It does because it means that some things, you know, if he goes in even in, even for an animal, it could have a butterfly effect that affects a lot of other things in the universe. God always has to weigh those effects. My question is, doesn't he can't weigh those effects because he doesn't know like what at a certain level it'll do. Like if he's like, well, if I turn water to wine, maybe a bird will drink it and that'll be weird, destable wine, and it will make the bird explode, which will cause a or it'll cause a genetic defect in a. I don't know, just something. Well, God would have a lot better idea of how things would devolve, but the fact is is that I think that there would be a natural order of entropy and chaos, and he could see how when the kind of ordering effect that he has on a system is removed, how it would devolve and dissolve in terms of into chaos. So this is exactly what the Old Testament has in mind. What God is confronting in the world is chaos, and he has to choose between the chaos in overcoming it but at the same time, he has to allow the chaos in the world because it's part of the world. And this explains why God may answer some prayers and not others, because it may be that the consequences of answering the prayer are too severe to the natural order, where in other cases it wouldn't be. We just don't have that knowledge, but God does. The bottom line is on this view, there's a sense in which God could stop every evil that occurs, but it's a very different sense than most people can see because it means that God has a trade-off if he does that. So if God stops this particular natural order from devolving the way that it would, there's a trade-off elsewhere in the natural order. The movie, I forget the name of it, where what's-his-name becomes God. What's his, what is his name? Bruce Almighty. Yeah, Bruce Almighty. So in Bruce Almighty, God gives him omnipotence so he can mess around with the natural order, right? So this is the kind of idea. So he starts messing around with things, but there are consequences with messing around with things. And he's not God. He doesn't really foresee the consequences of what he's going to do. God does. And so, in short order, he makes a real mess of the world with all kinds of, of havoc being wrecked that he didn't intend. Because God is super knowledgeable and wise, he doesn't mess in the world that way. And then you can see, oh, that's why he doesn't mess in the world, because it has consequences elsewhere in the world for a lot of people. And that's, that's what I'm asserting here that that kind of a notion is actually true, and that God has these trade-offs that he has to make in bringing about miracles and in stopping the natural order from devolving in the way that it would if it were a naturalistic propensity that's deterministic. Why isn't that your theodicy right there? Isn't that sufficient for a theodicy? You're like, well, God can't stop some of these things the end. That's what, you know, process, I would say. Oh, no, he could. That's the whole point. He does have power to stop them, but there's a trade-off to made. But not really, not without destroying the order of the, the whole world, basically. I mean, so I would say that's still not really an option. But it appears, and I'll tell you the way it appears to me, and this is the way I think that the Bible and the scriptures actually present it, God does intervene at times when it won't destroy his purposes in the natural world. There are some miracles he actually does intervene, and he stops things from occurring. Or I don't know how you turn water into wine. I understand there's a way to do it through chemistry. I don't think there is, but okay. Well, whatever. The bottom line is that God understands the consequences and how things would devolve, and we don't. And this theodicy would give a rationale for saying there may well be miracles that have a price that's too, too high to pay, and God weighs that price, and other miracles where it's not going to be. I can stop this cancer, but in this particular instance, if I stop that cancer, the consequences for everything that's going to occur in the world, the price is just going to be too steep for the chaos that's going to occur elsewhere in the world. 
what happens is, you know, if, if God is intervening all the time and too much, you get the Bruce Almighty world where things just careen out of control because the natural world has been monkeyed with too much. I don't know. That seems like a completely different, I mean, I guess you could just add that answer. No, remember I said that there were two different kinds of steps in addressing this. The first is the notion of consent, which ameliorates God's culpability for what's occurring because we've consented to what's occurring. In addition, there are limitations on what God can do. This is, just happens to be actual Mormon theology that we're discussing. And in Mormon scripture, the notion of consent is palpable. And also, the notion that the world is subject to chaos and to fall back into chaos is also a palpable part of the scriptural world. So what I'm doing, I'm drawing out the resources available in that worldview to address the problem of evil. And here we're addressing the problem of natural evils. Well, let me ask this last question, then we'll get to Jacob's questions. And I think some of this we had talked about, I'll just read it just because I wrote it down after reading this. So, all right, I wrote, so though we might learn something from showing compassion to those affected by natural disasters, does that really justify it? And I use this example, I'll say, so for example, if I'm a father and I see a boulder rolling down the hill at my child, I don't just let it happen so that he might learn something or those who watch him Actually, I think you already addressed this. I mean, like, I guess God can't stop that boulder, literally, or he could have. It would just ruin the natural world. I guess you could say that to this. Well, certainly a father can knock his child out of the way. I mean... Well, I know, and a father could. I'm just saying, if God's a loving father, then whether... I'm not, a, like, I don't know, I guess maybe a father doesn't have that kind of cognitive understanding to make this assessment, but... So why is it okay for God to let that happen? So I understand that my son may have consented to it before this life, and his life's purpose... Maybe he's already fulfilled, but the fact is, surely living longer would result in even more good because of the potential life that he could have had, regardless of his purposes being fulfilled or not, because that's why we feel sad when people die young, because of all the potential life that they could have had. Well, God has a lot more considerations than we do. I mean, a father has only one consideration, I'm going to save my son. God has a lot more considerations, like, are the purposes of my plan fulfilled if every time a boulder is rolling toward a child, I stop the boulder from rolling? So in regarding to what God withdrawing his concurrence, and back to your quote, you say, yet the result of such actions of stopping a tornado would leave chaos in the wake of structure. And so I'm just wondering, because, I don't know, like on a process view, for example, God, his power is only persuasive. Some theologians, such as Thomas J. Ord, have this idea that God is limited because God needs to be loving. And I think we talked about in Mormonism how you could come to this view when we talk about the power of the priesthood is, you know, uncontrolling. It's love unfeigned, it's charity, and it's persuasion generally. So is it ever consistent with being a loving God to withdraw concurrence ever? So by not allowing the natural world to do what it's doing, is that against the nature of God's love? I wouldn't think so. I mean, it seems to me that God could withdraw if the consequences to the rest of the natural order aren't too severe, and it would further his purposes and the purposes of the person for whom he's intervening. I mean, it seems to me that God, in, in fact, does intervene a lot. I mean, people talk about answered prayers quite often, and I take them at their word that, you know, they see God's involvement in their lives in a particular way where he's bringing things about that appear to me, it's only explainable by the fact that God is getting involved instead of staying uninvolved. Okay, it depends on your view of intelligences, I suppose, and I guess I know yours, so maybe this doesn't apply, but intelligences need to be organized and 
you know, I would think some of, I don't know, there's some certain strain of Mormon thought, meaning that like, you know, his power rises from the way that he is loving, the loving relationship he has with all of existence, basically. And I know maybe that's not exactly part of your view, because maybe yours is that emerges from the Trinity relationship, or not Trinity, but you know, the Godhead. But can you disorganize something and still say that you're fulfilling your purposes as God? What you're, I don't know, I, I would see that God just throwing something back into chaos is sort of against what God's all about. Well, I would think that God would want to maintain an ordered universe, but there may be instances where disorder also serves us. And in those instances, it seems to me that God would be perfectly justified in allowing the chaos to reign once again in certain areas of the universe. I mean, Okay, I guess you're right. Chaos isn't inherently bad. It's just one state of the natural universe. So, Sure. Um, and then one other question, I guess, which maybe you can't answer, but back to God's power, and at least anything that I'm generally thinking that I'm praying for, or any miracle that I've read about in the Bible, maybe not any, I'm sure there's some exceptions, but most of them seem to be doing a positive thing, such as raising someone from the dead, or turning loaves of fishes in, into many, or healing the sick. Well, I guess healing the sick, I could see how, but I'm not sure that withdrawing organization to something does something positive generally other than maybe in a sickness you could withdraw your concurrence from cancer and it goes away sure but well but you've got to remember that god also has organizing power <laughs> i mean he organizes the universe right but by its natural ways like you can't just organize something in the snap of a finger because that's not how it does it naturally yeah. Yeah, and we talked about this before, about the kinds of innumerable permutations that are available through organization and the emergent properties that arise from organization in surprising ways. If they're surprising, though, they can't be at will, right? Oh, no, I mean, they're, they're not surprising to God, they're surprising to us. So God knows the natural proclivities of the various natural intelligences, and so he is able, through organization, to bring about all kinds, you know, you get a plane that flies in the air. That Several tons of steel riding on, on wind is a pretty surprising kind of a thing. That's not even emergent. That's just, you know, the way that the natural order actually works. But you got to order it in a certain way before you can see that effect. The kinds of things when you get natural compounds together to form new kinds of emergent properties is always surprising to me. I mean, plastic is one of those properties, right? Aluminum, I can point out to all kinds of things that we've created that are novel in the history of the world that arise from putting the natural constituents together in a novel way to give a new result that we haven't seen before. And so God, in his organizing power, would have the ability to bring about all kinds of things that are just beyond our ability to understand and therefore appear to be miracles to us. And this falls back on, on the usual Mormon explanation of what a miracle is. It's not a breach of the natural order. This is the kind of where, we, you know, things occurred because the, the natural order is ordered the way that it can be, but we don't understand how it can be, and we, we don't understand how these kind of things result. Okay, so you include that aspect of Mormonism as well as this other concurrence thing. Right, so concurrence is kind of a negative action where I withdraw my concurrence and disorder results. God also has an organizing power. He can organize the universe through his ability to organize natural constituents. Obviously, because the natural order of things is to tend toward entropy, and things are not tending toward entropy, they're becoming organized. <laughs> so, I guess. But let's say plastic doesn't naturally come about, and it will never naturally come about until someone physically coerces the materials to meld in a certain way that they never would. Well, I mean, I guess maybe on some asteroids. <laughs> well, it does naturally come about. 
it's just through human intervention that we put new materials together in a way that they wouldn't occur in nature. But the properties of plastic are the natural result of the kinds of constituents of plastic. And so, you know, it's predictable that when we put those kind of constituents together, we always get plastic or aluminum foil or whatever you will that are kind of novel realities in this world because we've organized things in a very different way. Basically, it brings to mind the Shakespeare quote where it says, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And I guess you could apply it here, meaning there's more things that could be possible with the natural world than we even comprehend in our current science. I would say that that is not merely possible, it is absolutely the case. I, I don't see how it could be otherwise. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.